This is episode 21 with Dr. David Perlmutter on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. What is leaky gut syndrome? Well, leaky gut syndrome or intestinal hyperpermeability is where the small gaps in your intestinal wall or tight junctions become loose due to pro-inflammatory foods and stressors. These loose intestinal walls can then lead to inflammation that can affect the whole body basically by allowing harmful bacteria and toxins to directly enter your bloodstream. Many health experts are now saying that inflammation may be the root cause to many of today's chronic health diseases. Some of these diseases include, but are not limited to, diabetes, cardiovascular and autoimmune disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and yes, even cancer. I'm not trying to scare you guys, but I am trying to get the point across that taking care of your health is far more than just eating whole foods. That's why I'm honored to have today's guest, Dr. David Perlmutter, on episode 20 of Ancestral Health Radio. Not only do David and I talk shop about inflammation and gut permeability, we also go deep into the science of why and how to heal this inflammation from the inside out. In today's episode, you'll learn the direct correlation between diabetes and dementia, what coconut oil, ghee, and turmeric all have in common, how to heal your gut using fats and prebiotic fiber, and much, much more. Guys, I want you to stay tuned all the way towards the end of this episode. I'm going to be offering something special that I don't normally do, but I do plan on rolling out in future episodes, which is give away the book of today's guest, which is Dr. Perlmutter. And how you're going to be able to do that is by listening towards the end of this episode. I'm going to fill you in on exactly how you can get either Grain Brain or Brain Maker your choice towards the end of this episode, okay? So remember, check in towards the end to get directions and details on exactly how to do that. For more information, head back to ancestralhealthradio.com forward slash 21. Dr. David Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist, fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and four-time New York Times best-selling author. He received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition and is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by such medical institutions as Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York University, and Harvard University. 
He serves as associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Perlmutter has interviewed on many national syndicated television programs, including 2020, Larry King Live, CNN, Fox News, Fox and Friends, The Today Show, Oprah, The Dr. Oz Show, and The CBS Early Show. He is the recipient of the Linus Pauling Award for his innovative approaches to neurological disorders. He is also the recipient of the 2006 National Nutritional Foods Association Clinician of the Year Award and was awarded the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the American College of Nutrition in 2010. In 2015, Dr. Perlmutter was awarded both the Media Award from the American College of Nutrition and the Healthy Living Award from the Invisible Disabilities Association. Dr. Perlmutter's books have been published in 29 languages, include Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs, and Sugar, with over 1 million copies in print. Other New York Times bestsellers include Brain Maker, The Grain Brain Cookbook, and his most recent book, The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, which was just released in November of 2016. Uh, thank you and welcome to the show, Dr. Perlmutter. I'm really excited well, to have you on. thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Delighted to be here today. All right. Well, I was thinking what we could do is just break into your first, or not rather your first book, but the first book that I mentioned, which is Grain Brain. And I think for a lot of people that are new to this, they understand that grains, carbohydrates, they, the, that they can have a sensitivity, but they don't know why. Can you maybe break in to the mystery as to why these uh, grains or and or carbohydrates might be um, affecting people? Certainly. And, you know, when we talk about grains, by strict definition, we are talking about the seeds of grass. And as such, we include such things as rice, corn, uh, obviously wheat. Uh, there are a lot of other things that aren't technically uh, grains, but certainly generally included in the discussion, things like quinoa, for example. But we, we'd have to talk about the consumption of grains from two perspectives. First, some grains like wheat, uh, uh, barley, and rye contain a protein called gluten. Uh, gluten contains a subprotein called gliadin, and it turns out that gliadin is a mischief maker, not just in people who have celiac disease, uh, not just in people who think they might be gluten sensitive and may very well be, but as new research that came out actually after Grain Brain was written, uh, we know that 100% of people, everyone, to some degree, has an increased permeability or leakiness of their gut when they are exposed to this protein called gliadin, which makes up part of gluten. Again, contained in specific uh, grains, uh, wheat, barley, and rye. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because we now understand that this leakiness of the gut, this permeability of the bowel, leaky gut syndrome, as it's called, is the entry point for enhancing inflammation in the entire body from the top of the head to the bottom of your toe, involving the brain, the heart, the joints, the skin, you name it. Inflammation that is brought on by this leakiness of the gut that is a consequence of consuming gliadin, inflammation is the cornerstone mechanistically of every chronic disease that you don't want to get, including coronary artery disease, uh, Alzheimer's disease, just to name a couple, even cancer. I'm not saying that eating uh, gluten-containing grain, grain is going to suddenly give you cancer or Alzheimer's or who knows what. 
But we know that the mechanism involved in all of those issues is inflammation. So my mission is to turn uh, all of our efforts on to reduce every straw on the camel's back that may cause inflammation in the human body. And that includes getting rid of gluten, that protein found in wheat, barley, and rye. Now, it's been estimated that here in America, uh, wheat and wheat derivatives make up about 40% of the foods that we eat. And, you know, we as clinicians, as physicians who are involved in treating patients, sometimes need to take a step back and ask ourselves, what in the heck is going on? Why are we seeing these skyrocketing rates of these chronic degenerative conditions? Why is Alzheimer's, for example, that currently affects 5.4 million Americans, going to triple in its prevalence uh, by the year 2050? Why does the World Health Organization now rank chronic degenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and heart disease as the number one cause of death in the world? That includes wow. underdeveloped countries as well as the uh, developed countries ahead of infectious diseases and trauma and war. So we've got to ask ourselves, what has happened? And it's not as if there's suddenly been this uh, dramatic change in our genetics. No, our genome hasn't changed at all in tens of thousands of years to any significant degree in 70 to 80,000 uh, years, and even generally in about 2 million years. So Genetically, there hasn't been a sudden change. Our environment has changed, and mm -hmm. most importantly, the signals that we send to our DNA based upon our lifestyle choices, like the food we eat, have changed dramatically. So, as an overview, that is the reason that I come down really aggressively uh, against gluten-containing grains. Now, um, it, it was, it's interesting that we are having this discussion today because recently a study was published indicating that people who go on a – this was the conclusion that the news media picked up, uh, fake news – people that go on a gluten-free diet have an increased risk of getting diabetes. But the study <laughs> didn't control for uh, the fact that people who go on a gluten-free diet – uh, didn't make up that uh, fiber that they would have otherwise gotten. So it isn't just going gluten-free, but cutting fiber out of the diet in general was uh, what was characteristic of patients who went gluten-free. You don't want to cut out fiber. We <laughs> desperately need fiber, and we'll get to this later in our interview, to nurture our gut bacteria. So it's the gluten. Uh, it's the gluten that really is is causing the problem in, according to work by Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard, 100% of humans. Mm. Now, the other issue uh, that is certainly raised in grains now more generically, not even those that contain that are non-gluten containing, uh, but all grains, is the fact that by and large they and the foods from uh, from well, that are derived from grains are generally high in carbs. Uh, especially when they are highly processed types of grains. So, oh, yeah. uh, for example, um, there's no gluten in rice, and uh, nor is there any gluten in corn. But nonetheless, you can really pound yourself with uh, a lot of carbohydrates 
which have devastating effects on the physiology and change gene expression, I might add, to the, to the worse. By eating a lot of these grains, that may very well be gluten-free. There is nothing magical about walking down the gluten-free aisle in the grocery store and selecting gluten-free cereal, gluten-free pasta, breads, cakes, cookies, uh, flour, you name it. Because you're still amplifying phase two of our program, and that is the carbohydrate intake. We know, according to wonderfully well-respected research, uh, that diets higher in carbs are strongly associated with increased risk of, de- of becoming cognitively impaired, read uh, dementia plus the, uh, Alzheimer's disease, in comparison to diets that are deriving more of their calories from fat. And for listeners who are interested in knowing where that comes from, it comes from the highly respected Journal of Alzheimer's Disease published in 2004, uh, Volume 12, a study actually that took place at the Mayo Clinic. So uh, by Dr. Roberts, you know, well-respected individuals and certainly a well-respected journal and a well-respected institution. And what they, they found in the study was that individuals who derive the balance of their carbohydrates, the, the most of their carbohydrates uh, from uh, calories from carbohydrates, had about an 80% increased risk uh, over the time of the study, which was a, about a 3.7-year study, of developing dementia, uh, as opposed to, for, to those individuals who derive most of their uh, carb, uh, calories from fat, mm-hmm. whose risk was actually reduced by about 44%. So wow. we're not talking gluten here. Right. We're talking about do you get your calories from carbs or do you get your calories from fat? Mm-hmm. And what these researchers found uh, was that those getting their calories from fat had a reduction in their risk for dementia. Those getting them mostly from carbs had an increased risk of dementia. Now, having said that, uh, you know, the the, the mechanism here that's involved is that when you derive your calories from carbs, you are amping up, what did I say, inflammation. And as such, I would venture to say my own extrapolation of these results is we could expect similar uh, findings with respect to other inflammatory diseases like coronary artery disease and certainly, certainly diabetes. Uh, why do I fixate on diabetes so much? It, it's because uh, diabetes is an independent risk factor for dementia. Mm-hmm. If you become a type 2 diabetic, how do you do that? Eat more carbs, eat more sugar. That was you, my father. <laughs> well, you quadruple your risk for becoming demented. Mm-hmm. Developing Alzheimer's disease, the most common type of dementia, a situation for which there is no treatment. As you and I have this conversation right now, there is no meaningful treatment for that disease, <clears throat> despite the commercials that you might see on television. My mission is to get the mess, uh, this word out that, hey, your food choices matter a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, And that's really uh, why I wrote a book called Grain Brain. Yeah. The, the powerful influence of gluten and wheat uh, as well as carbohydrates in terms of charting your brain's destiny. And you know what? And I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. And there are so many other people out there that are so grateful for the work that you're doing. Specifically, a former guest of mine, too. 
uh, Alan, the forager chef, uh, Burgo, he actually said that uh, you helped him through a series of protocols that allowed him to live a normal life again. So on his behalf, I want to thank you. On my behalf, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing because, as you said, my father had type 2 diabetes, but not Alzheimer's, but Parkinson's disease. And he, he unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And you know, that's why this is part of my mission. That's why ancestral health has been such a huge influence on my own life, that it needs this type of message, understanding that, you know, we as a species, uh, fat is a very important part of our diet. It's not to be feared. And that now that we're uncovering the facts that the sugar industry, for example, have been hiding from us for a long time. Can you speak about that for a little bit? I'd be delighted. So uh, as you're uh, alluding to, um, we we know now that there was a major push about – well, in the late 1960s to uh, shift our attention uh, away from the, the dangers of sugar and higher carbohydrates and focus our attention on the dangers, the presumed dangers of consuming dietary fat. And what we've now learned, we suspected it for a long time, is that the sugar industry uh, really got deeply involved in influencing the publications in peer-reviewed medical journals that demonstrated uh, that actually eating sugar was great, have at it, no problem, and that dietary fat was the villain. And uh, you know, I had a, a nice discussion with uh, uh, Gary Taubes recently, and it, mm -hmm. I didn't know this, but apparently his uh, research group actually uh, was involved in doing that, uh, in, in uncovering that evidence that ultimately made its way to oh, the Journal of the American Medical Association so and was fr front page New York Times. Uh, the the influence was uh, surreptitiously uh, involving doctors who then went on to publish these research so-called research studies castigating fat and really embellishing the role of of dietary sugar and carbohydrates why were they doing uh, that they were paid uh, the mm -hmm. reality is they were uh, they were paid um, and these are the days back in the late 1960s when when you wrote a uh, a research article in a journal you didn't have to disclose uh, any relationship that you might have with industry. Now, of course, when you write an article, you have to be very uh, for forthright and disclose what relationships you may have. If you speak on the on behalf of of industry, or if you're on uh, staff or do research for industry. Yeah, and just real quick, just to bring up an, uh, another previous guest is Dr. Gerald Pollack and the work that he's doing over there. That people understand that he has a, a, a foundation that he's trying to get going. Uh, with people that, that are trying to fund these type of studies, uh, unconventional studies that are trying to get unconventional sciences approved um, without the backing of these big conglomerates or these huge corporations that have ulterior motives. So I just thought that I might want to plug that also because that's important that people remember that as well too. But uh, please continue. So uh, this was highly influential because... Uh, doctors would read these journal articles and then they would formulate their opinions based upon they, what they believed was objective, uh, unbiased information put forth by these well-respected physicians. That changed the dietary habits of the planet, basically, uh, because you know the United States at that time sort of led the way in terms of uh, what we thought was uh, healthful and, uh, and salubrious in terms of our recommendations – 
uh, and uh, it really moved the needle globally. And I believe uh, that influence in and of itself was probably responsible for millions of premature deaths, right. uh, far more than uh, World War One, World War Two combined, uh, because this is death from chronic degenerative disease that became rampant. You know, the heart disease issue became rampant, uh, and you know we then placed uh, our uh, the emphasis on lowering fat in the diet and castigating cholesterol as if that was the villain uh, as an attempt to develop these one-stop shop uh, therapies like statin drugs to lower the dreaded cholesterol, which we'll talk about in a moment. And ultimately, you know, it paved the way for where we are today, where we are having devastatingly high rates of obesity, uh, diabetes in teenagers, uh, cancer rates that still continue to climb. Uh, all because we strayed away uh, from our ancestral diet, which, yeah. f- which uh, honed and shaped our genome over tens of thousands of years, a diet that was based upon what we could hunt, but more importantly, what we would find on the ground, be it uh, dead flesh uh, or uh, tubers, vegetables, things that, that we would just eat high in fiber, generally low in carbohydrates, certainly low in simple sugars, but our most coveted food that allowed us to survive was fat. Mm-hmm. Fat in the form of animal fat, very concentrated source of calories. So this is what sustained us, but more importantly, not sustained us moment to moment, but it is this relationship with food that sent specific signals to our DNA, to our 23,000 genes, that developed this beautiful dance between nature and nurture, mm-hmm. between our environment and our genome, that paved the way for you and me to have this discussion today. Absolutely. Now, suddenly, uh, in the past several decades, uh, there's been this incredible shift in the language that we are using to communicate with our DNA, the, the signals that we are sending to our DNA, the foods that we are eating now that are processed and focused on higher levels of simple sugars and carbohydrates are causing maladaptive mm-hmm. genes to express themselves. And these are the very genes that increase the production of chemicals that are related to inflammation and that are damaging our immune function, the cornerstones of why we are so sick today. And it is even beyond the fact that our genes are now expressing maladaptive uh, uh, products. We know that the foods we eat are also communicating directly with the 100 trillion organisms that live within us. They eat what we eat. And their metabolic products, what the bacteria manufacture that live within us, is governed by how we uh, nurture them or not. So what we're now seeing is that certainly a diet that's high in in simple sugars and low in fiber and fat is causing uh, our our, uh, uh, metabolome from our gut bacteria, the metabolic products that they manufacture, to be altered and therefore giving us bad health. But even the gene expression of our genome is influenced by our gut bacteria, which is influenced by the food that we eat. So it's a very, very uh, new lens through which we look at our food uh, that we had no idea about uh, in years gone by. And it's compelling, uh, challenging, but 
on the upside, this glass being half full uh, is telling us that we've got a brand new playing field with huge opportunities mm -hmm. to leverage this information and allow people to regain their health. When we damage the gut bacteria because of inappropriate food choices, because of various medications like antibiotics, proton pump inhibitor acid-blocking drugs, non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, chlorinated water. How about stress? Stress, for sure. There's a wonderful new study that just came out re uh, relating stress to changes in the, in the microbiome. And even food that contains glyphosate, a, an herbicide that uh, is being used uh, across the world, damaging our, our gut bacteria, uh, then we change what those bacteria make and what they make influences mm -hmm. our health. Here's an example. So many people now are getting the message that sugar is bad. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't didn't fall on deaf ears as it relates to people who make soda, you know, carbonated beverages. Oh, so no. they came yeah. out with all of these artificially sweetened beverages. And, you know, on the outside, you'd say, well, heck, I'm not drinking sugar anymore. Uh, I'm drinking uh, drinks that are sweetened with aspartame. Nothing could be wrong with that. I mean, after all, no calories, no sugar. Well, it turns out that the research demonstrates that artificially sweetened beverages actually will uh, cause more weight gain and a dramatic increase risk of diabetes, even far more than the sugar-sweetened beverages. Now, you know, on the outside, that makes no sense. That is certainly counterintuitive. How could I be gaining weight and raising my blood sugar if this stuff that I'm drinking day in and day out has zero calories and zero sugar? <laughs> and I have to say, when the research uh, uh, from France uh, was published, a massive study, 35,000 individuals involved, uh, we all puzzled over that, uh, trying to determine a mechanism whereby uh, drinking diet drinks are going to make you fat and give you diabetes. Well, it turns out that our uh, query was answered by a very comprehensive study that uh, was published by researchers in Israel, both an animal study and a human interventional trial, giving people artificial sweeteners and laboratory animals as well, showing that it happens because of changes in the array and the diversity of bacteria that live within us. Mm -hmm. We change our gut bacteria and lo and behold, you get fat and become diabetic. And it was really a fascinating study because they induced significant changes in the gut bacteria within weeks uh, in humans by giving them artificial sweeteners. Then they took the human uh, stool and transplanted it into laboratory animals that didn't have gut bacteria. Oh, no and lo and behold, these laboratory animals suddenly gained a whole lot of weight and their blood sugar uh, blood studies uh, became dramatically abnormal. Okay, so, so let, me, let me try and break that down again real quick. So what you're telling me is that they did a study and they gave the soda to humans, which then they took the fecal matter of after they gained weight and seeing that 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 this was happening and then did a fecal transplant to a lab animal and the lab animal had the exact same results well i mean certainly wasn't the exact at same least result. ballooned in size they ballooned in size and their sugar parameters um you know their sugar That's parameters changed uh, significantly i mean it was a great bit of research and 
you know, it, it answered a very important question for all of us who are seeing these results about artificial sweeteners and uh, puzzling over it. But, you know, this study that was published in uh, on September the um, – 17th, 2014, again by researchers in Israel in the journal Nature, for anyone who wants to look it up, uh, really answered some very powerful questions uh, for us. Uh, we were seeing the observation, and we were making the observation, didn't know why, and it was because of changes in the microbiome. And it's very, very sad that that word didn't, hasn't gotten out. Not only that the research uh, showed it was caused by changes in microbiome in the gut bacteria, but taking a step back, the research that clearly demonstrates that when you drink this crap, you're going to gain weight and dramatically double your risk, as much as double your risk for becoming a type 2 diabetic, which is, as I have mentioned, associated with cancer, heart disease, and even Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, you know, this is important information that has to get out and no one's talking about it. You're not going to see this on the evening news. Uh, and certainly the manufacturers of these uh, artificially sweetened beverages are not going to let you know about this. So no, you know, that's not. why, you know, you, you're, you show up on Ancestral Health and you, you talk about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So All what right. can we do to help rebuild the microflora? How can we send the right messages to our gut bacteria so that we can repopulate and re-diversify our microflora? Well... You know, again, I, I'm going to just take the question to the, the, your first question because we'll get to rebuilding. First of all, I want to talk about what we do to screw it up. Okay. And, uh, you know, the first thing that I don't think we can um, really change much is, uh, you know, the idea that we're living in the 21st century and there are so many factors uh, over which we don't really have a lot of control that are changing our, our microflora. And frankly, some of these changes might be adaptive. In other words, some of these changes that are going on in the organisms that live within us may actually be uh, uh, allowing us to deal with and respond to the world in which we live. Uh, uh, so I just want to preface by saying that uh, because we, you know this is a very responsive sort of uh, adaptive mechanism that we have. But uh, first – uh, you know, I, th I certainly think uh, that food is the the most important uh, issue in terms of influencing the gut bacteria. You know, when we uh, talk about uh, a woman being pregnant, we always say, well, you've got to be careful now. Uh, you're eating for two. Well, you know, each and every one of us is eating for uh, 100 trillion. That's the right. number of organisms that live within us who depend on our prefrontal cortex to make the right decisions in terms of what we feed them. Now, we eat based upon two influences. What our primitive brain is telling us, which is basically seek out sweet uh, and fat, and because those are hard drive, you know, those came with, with the computer. Uh, but the apps that we have loaded over, uh, you know, over the past couple of million years that really define us as being humans, giving us this prefrontal cortex that allow us to say, oh, okay, I know I deep down inside want to eat this crap because <laughs> it's sweet and we all have a sweet tooth because it allowed us to survive. Mm -hmm. we'll get to that in a minute. But here's what I know. And I'm going to override my primitive desires and not eat sugar all the time. Rather, I'm going to eat in such a way that will nurture my microbiome. And that means eating 
much higher levels of fiber and specifically what is called prebiotic fiber. Not all fiber is prebiotic fiber, but many fruits and more vegetables contain prebiotic fiber, so-called because it nurtures the gut bacteria in such a way as to enhance our health. Mm. Now, what are foods rich in this prebiotic fiber? Well, jicama, Mexican yam is a great example, garlic, onions, leeks, chicory root, mm. uh, dandelion greens, asparagus. These are foods that have high levels of prebiotic fiber. We are getting nowhere near enough prebiotic fiber. Uh, you can go to the health food store and buy a bag of prebiotic fiber and take a heaping tables, a tablespoon every day. The best source of that is uh, from the acacia tree. Acacia Senegal is that high canopy tree that you see in Africa with the giraffe underneath it in the pictures. And that tree secretes a resin or what's been called gum, acacia gum, that is sustainably harvested and provides uh, – you know, uh, revenue for the people who do that work. Uh, it is uh, like resin. Uh, it's made into a powder, and you buy it at the health food store. That's a powerfully um, important source of prebiotic fiber that nurtures your gut bacteria. The other thing is to be consuming foods that are fermented. We know that foods that have gone through fermentation, uh, provided they haven't been uh, cooked, uh, things like kimchi and uh, com drinking kombucha, cultured yogurt, uh, sauerkraut, for example, fermented foods tend to be rich in bugs, in bacteria. The food is crawling with germs, and yet here Dr. Perlmutter is saying that's what you should eat. Yeah, <laughs> you should. We have been actively fermenting food as a way of uh, preserving food for at least 7,000 years. But frankly, uh, the process of uh, fermentation goes on as a food rots. <laughs> so in our hunter-gatherer days, we would eat food that we'd find that had fallen from the tree and already started to rot. Yeah. And that was a good thing. And that, that's you know bacteria starting to break down the food. Uh, and um, that – it was good for us. We were – Living this life where we embraced cooties. <laughs> you know what I mean? We would eat this stuff, and it was good for us. We had this incredible relationship. Yeah, there wasn't any 10-second rule. Yeah, well, we you know, we don't have that rule in our house anymore. <laughs> Neither we do I. We leave it on the floor, we'll pick it up later. And no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, that what you say is very true. The You know, we have this very uh, almost neurosis with hygiene, um, and, you know, uh, we... Dr. Strachan, back in 1988, developed what was called the, the hygiene hypothesis, indicating that our obsession with hygiene and the notion that germs are our enemy, based on you know, the, the germ theory, paved the way for us to take an antibiotic every time we had a sniffle, uh, hand sanitizers on the end cap at the grocery store, uh, and uh, this obsession with cleanliness. So I recently interviewed a uh, a researcher, Dr. Fox, on uh, her publication that correlated the degree of diversity of bacteria and even the presence of parasites in the gut mm -hmm. and correlated that in the country, a particular country, she looked at over 100 countries, with the rates in that country of Alzheimer's disease. Those countries that had the lowest degree of parasites and the lowest amount of bacterial diversity had the highest rates of Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. And I 
in a, my interview, I said, you know, I would bet you could translate this information to heart disease, yeah. uh, certainly the autoimmune conditions like lupus and Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, etc. So again, we, we've got to get away from this notion that around every corner there is a, a germ that's ready to jump on us and end our life. <laughs> yeah. and therefore, we should have the antibiotics at the ready. Yeah. Our, our own CDC here in America, Centers for Disease Control, uh, has indicated that 30% of the antibiotics that are prescribed to people are inappropriate and unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Having said that, 70% of the antibiotics produced in America are used in cattle and poultry. So we're getting a dose of antibiotics when we eat this stuff, whether you think you're avoiding antibiotics or not. And just as a prelude, Monsanto has a patent on glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, as an antibiotic. So all of our discussions about antibiotics damaging the microbiome are relevant as it relates to GMO foods like uh, corn and soy, for example, that have been sprayed with glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, and even wheat, which is not just, GMO, but is still sprayed with this antibiotic, which we then eat uh, as well. It just sounds so, so crazy to me. Real quick, I'm sorry. As no, no I'm problem. hearing you say all this, it just sounds like a giant conspiracy, you know? <laughs> so, for example, the glyphosate is sprayed on the organic food that we're eating, or say that there's rain coming down on it, the rain is polluted with glyphosate. What are we to do about all this? I mean, it's it's pretty daunting to think about all the things against us. All commercial food, you know, from carbohydrates to everything, I I just feel like we have a lot to work against. I feel like there's a lot of work that we have to do. Well, you know, every journey begins with the first step, A, and B, uh, it's better to light the single candle than curse the darkness, and C, um, (laughs) Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, do not go where the path may lead, go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Mm. So that's our mission, and... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on that is really uh, devastating to global health. But, uh, you know, ancestral health is one little voice that's making uh, this message heard uh, to whomever will listen. I write books for whomever will read them. Uh, I do, you know, PBS shows, etc. I I fully recognize that despite the fact that, uh, you know, my books are in many languages – that so few people on this planet are going to get this message. Why do I say that? Just look around. Just look around at the at people in general uh, and their health, but read the statistics on global health, and it's very, very worrisome. But you know what? That's not going to take us out of the game. Mm-hmm. We're still going to stay in the game and do our very best uh, to sound the warning. Yeah, armed with the knowledge that we have now uh, regarding these type of, I don't know, uh, dark conspiracies, you know, uh, uh, you know, sugar versus fat. And maybe we could speak a little bit more on the importance of fat in our diet. Going from a very low fat diet, you know, the typical eating six meals a day, carbohydrates with all of those, very low fat. And then how, how do we make that transition into consuming more fat? What types of fat should we be eating and, and what does that look like? Great question. And I would say that first, if we look at it, from a historical perspective, again, most of our calories uh, in days gone by has uh, were derived from uh, a fat. So uh, again, the um, the notion of 
challenging this well-honed genome by now confronting it with uh, a, a diet that is sending uh, the wrong, wrong signals and therefore the products of our DNA, the proteins that are manufactured, are maladaptive or related to inflammation. I think that's another perspective from which we look at fat versus carbs and, and, and fall on the side of fat. So um, first, you know, again, a diet that is higher in sugar and carbohydrates raises blood sugar mm -hmm. and that's not what you want to do. Uh, a, a study that was um, published in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine in 2013, September, uh, looked at one parameter, blood sugar, and measured a group of several thousand individuals, followed them over 6.7 years, and looked at their initial blood sugar and simply asked this question, who became demented and who did not? <laughs> and what they found was that people who had elevated blood sugar had a dramatically increased risk of becoming demented. But what was so powerfully uh, revealing in that study is that the people who even had a blood sugar around 100 to 105 also had an increased risk of becoming demented. Now look, you go to the doctor with a blood sugar of 105 and she or he is going to say, hey, everything's cool, you're not diabetic, although the word yet holds, hangs in the sky, uh, and everything's great, you're still in the normal range. Well, my life uh, is not about being in the normal range, it's about telling people what isn't normal, which is average, which isn't great, what is in the optimal range, what's the best I can tell you, and that is the lower your blood sugar, the better. Blood sugar, 85, maybe 90, that's ideal. We get to that by eating less sugar and less carbohydrates and by eating more fat. Fat is fuel for the brain. Uh, fat is 60% by weight, what makes up your brain. Fat regulates in a positive way the immune system, provided it's the right type of fat. And that answers the second part of your question, what should we be eating in the fat department? And here we come up against a very uh, meaningful dichotomy between good and bad fats. By and large, the, the, the cooking oils, for example, that you see on the grocery store shelves, the safflower, corn, sunflower, canola oils that are modified in such a way that they have this incredible shelf life, you walk down the aisle and they're always, on this, oddly enough, on the same aisle that has all the baking goods, the flour on one side and the oils on the other, like that's all you need. <laughs> you know, you ask people in uh, – what are the staples? They are, well, we need flour, sugar, and water, and then we, you know, and, and oil, and then you can survive, right? You see, that's what uh, is delivered to third world countries when people think they're being beneficent. But those types of, uh, mod of uh, modified fats are sending detrimental signals to our genome. They are powerfully pro-inflammatory recalling our earlier discussion about how inflammation is the cornerstone mechanism of everything bad that we don't want in our, our lives. Well, from a medical perspective anyway. Uh, what we want are these unmodified, highly natural, God-given types of oils like are extracted from the olive or from the coconut or from nuts and seeds or even the fat that you might find in grass-fed beef or wild fish or uh, free-range poultry. Those are the fats that our bodies thrive on. And uh, so, 
you know, when you look at studies that say, well, we compared high fat versus low fat based upon a food questionnaire, and here's what we found. People that had a high fat diet were doing terribly, and, and people who ate red meat do terribly. And uh, it, it, you need to do a little more work in your research, thank you very much, because you can't just say high fat diet. That's like saying, well, we're going to look at alcohol consumption in terms of health, and we're not going to differentiate between uh, people who drink a glass of Merlot versus those who take a couple of shots of Jack Daniels every day. It's hugely different. Yeah. So is the type of meat that people eat and the type of fat that they consume. Those are the refined parameters that need to go in this study. So when you read a book like Dr. Campbell's The China Study, I think that his conclusions are absolutely valid, that there is an increased risk of cancer, especially bowel cancer, and people eating a lot of red meat. Do I believe that? You bet I do. Do I eat the type of meat that went into the studies that allowed him to come up with his uh, data? You bet I don't. <laughs> his studies that he cites in his book, and he's a terrific guy, he's an amazing researcher, but the studies are, do you eat red meat or do you not? Are you a Seventh-day Adventist or are you not? And the problem is that the meat, by and large, that people are eating is devastating. And it's because of the fat that it contains. It's because of the type of grain and, and food that those cattle were given. The antibiotics uh, with which they were treated, uh, the, the food, the grain that they were given sprayed with glyphosate that changed their microbiomes that turn on inflammation. Um, but free-range beef is a good thing. It's uh, something uh, humans have been eating for a long, long time. So, you know, I, I think it's so important that when a study suddenly is published or a book is published saying red meat will give you cancer. Well, I want to know what is the red meat you're talking about? Is it the type of stuff that you find generally in the grocery store at the drive-thru? Or are we talking about a difference between that and grass-fed, you know, free-range, uh, wild fish, you name it? I think it's so important that we differentiate. Same thing with fat. Same thing with carbohydrates. I mean, the very prebiotic fiber foods that I mentioned to you earlier are carbohydrates, complex carbohydrates. A prebiotic, by and large, is a macromolecule made up of uh, molecules of fructose, terrible fructose, bound together. But we as humans cannot digest that. We cannot break down those large groups of fructose molecules bound together, but our gut bacteria can. And that then allows our gut bacteria to make things that will allow us to thrive. Certain things called short-chain fatty acids, mm -hmm. helping to make the serotonin and the other neurotransmitters that you talked about a moment ago, dopamine, norepinephrine, etc., 90% of which aren't made in the brain, they're made in the gut. Hence, calling them neurotransmitters, uh, I'm sure they function like that, but they're made in the gut. And they, they have functions throughout the human body, certainly not just confined to the brain. When we alter our gut bacteria by consuming artificial sweeteners, uh, acid-blocking drugs, antibiotics, high-sugar diet, you name it, not enough fiber, then the gut bacteria can't do what they need to do and make our neurotransmitters, manufa help manufacture our serotonin and have a, an effect upon our mood. The B vitamins that we desperately need for heart health and for brain health, 
and perhaps most importantly, do their job day in and day out to keep the gut lining intact so mm-hmm. that we don't develop this increased leakiness that is what causes inflammation. Wow. Yeah. And it's such a huge topic for me because of my father and my family history. And I'm always looking for new strategies and techniques that I can play around with or experiment with to see if I can optimize my diet in that way. And I had a previous guest on, and this is someone that you know well, I'm pretty sure. His name is Dr. John Duyard. And Dr. John, he wrote a book called Eat Wheat. And it was funny because he says that it's not a grain brain effect, but rather a brain drain effect where the brain has become toxic due to like the congested lymph around the gut, which then compromises our ability to detox and hinders the function of our immune system. And he says that uh, whole wheat has, you know, a low glycemic index, lowers the risk of blood sugar issues and reduces the risk of Alzheimer's by 53% in one study and 54% in another. And then goes on to say, how can the Mediterranean diet, which included three servings of whole grains and whole wheat a day, increase Alzheimer's when the studies show it reduces it by 53 or 54%. And, uh, you know, I'll link to that show in the show notes, but I just wanted to say that and have that as some ammunition because I do occasionally like to enjoy some organic sprouted einkorn sourdough bread. So uh, what exactly do you have to say in in refute to that? Well, I think that what uh, would be really exciting would be to have Dr. John Duyard and myself go head to head (laughs) in a a peaceful debate uh, about uh, what his new book is all about. As a matter of fact, we did that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I interviewed him on my uh, Empowering Neurologist uh, video um, show, which is on my website, drpromoter.com. And uh, the, the truth of the matter is, that John and I have been friends for 25 years, <laughs> yeah. that I actually, uh, in my Ayurvedic medicine training, he was uh, one of the instructors, and I think that John is a sweetheart. He's just a terrific, uh, mild-mannered, dedicated uh, individual, and we debated exactly what you're talking about. Uh, it's it's not good enough, with all due respect, to quote data that says uh, diets that uh, included a serving of, of grains uh, were associated with a reduced risk of Alzheimer's, like Mediterranean diet, because mm-hmm. there, there's so much more involved. Right. Why? Because that diet is uh, a low glycemic index diet. It, does, uh, it, it has very little effect on blood sugar in a negative way, that's for sure. It has lots of olive oil, which is critically important as an so anti-inflammatory. Uh, olives, and lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, So because it contains grain and the diet is associated with reduced risk of Alzheimer's, to say, well, the only thing in that diet that we're going to focus on is the grain, and therefore we're going to say grain reduces Alzheimer's risk by 55%. It's it's an unfortunate extrapolation. I will say uh, that uh, John and I had a very, very... Um, meaningful interaction uh, and that the commentary uh, that followed our posting of that interview was uh, we had the the largest response I think that we've ever had in terms of the comments first of all and by and large the comments had nothing to do with what we were talking about Hmm. uh, but had to do with the fact that here were two people who were able in a very peaceful and respectful way 
that we could have a conversation. And it was, you know, I have to say that we recorded that um, <laughs> at a time when uh, our nation was torn apart by really um, these very contentious uh, debates that were going on in pre in, uh, involving the presidential election. And I think people were just so impressed to see that two people could have differing opinions yeah. and, yet be, and yet be respectful. So, I, again, uh, I would encourage people to look at that debate. I'm not going to say that I won it or John won it. That's not what it was about. It was about uh, putting forth our ideas and letting people make up their own minds. That's so, what it should be. Uh, I think John's, again, a, a great uh, person, and I think he's very, very dedicated. Frankly, I don't agree with the notions uh, in his book, mm -hmm. but that's okay. That's what moves the ball down the field is disagreement and, and finally, you know, uh, coming together in a way that uh, we come to a conclusion that then tends to advance science. Yeah, absolutely. And just to, to continue with that, I have a future guest uh, coming on. Her name is Elle Russ of the Primal Blueprint podcast, and she had nothing but good things to say about you as well. And she told me to ask you if there are any other circumstances why a human being should intend or ever eat wheat. Uh, other than, of course, an enjoyable cheat in life, is there any real, like, biomechanical, medical, or nutritional reason for humans to do that? Well, I'd say if you were starving and there's nothing else in the cabinet, uh, <laughs> then you're you're free to have it. And you know, um, if you do cheat from time to time, probably the world isn't going to come to an end. And but understand that uh, again. Gliadin, well beyond wheat, mm -hmm. gliadin uh, found in uh, uh, barley and rye and certainly in, in much of, of the oats that we might come into contact with, is the issue. Uh, it does uh, increase gut permeability, but it acts as a straw on the camel's back. So I think that eating gluten-containing foods might be less of a threat for people who are otherwise in good shape as it relates to the care that they are taking to their gut via their diet and lifestyle choices. Mm -hmm. But for people who are in a bad way, who you know, have not been careful, who've been taking antibiotics or other medications or, and or maybe uh, suffering from any of the particular uh, diseases that we now associate with gut permeability like um, dementia, uh, other things, Lou Gehrig's disease, autism, uh, etc., then those uh, indiscretions of diet that contain uh, gluten are more relevant. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say, you know, that was actually one of the contentions that uh, I was able to pin John Dooliard down, and that is, uh, he said that if people are really in good shape, then at a certain time of year they can eat wheat because it's not going to bother them. Mm. But if their microbiomes basically are in good shape, but you know my contention is that most people's microbiomes are in terrible shape. Oh, absolutely. Uh, based upon uh, the frequency by which uh, we take antibiotics, for example, uh, the 14 million Americans who are right now taking uh, acid blocking proton pump acid blocking drugs. Uh, to take care of their so-called uh, reflux. Yeah, and why GERD. are they getting reflux and GERD too? Dietary. Mm -hmm. But you know, the point is that those drugs are not a free ride, despite the fact that these drugs are uh, over the counter. So you know, these are the acid-blocking drugs everybody thinks they need to take. Let's look a little bit at the science. 
uh, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Neurology Journal, uh, last year, a powerful uh, study demonstrated uh, that those individuals who are chronically taking uh, acid-blocking drugs have more than a 40% increased risk of developing dementia. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Well, uh, you know, we can link to that study if you want. Wow, yes. Uh, and beyond that, that, a very large study that was done at Stanford uh, University demonstrated that people who chronically take these drugs have uh, about a 16% uh, increased risk of developing, uh, of having a heart attack. And if they have that heart attack, uh, the chances of dying from that heart attack are doubled. And it now looks as if that the uh, issue that relates taking the acid-blocking drugs, which change the pH of the entire digestive system, changes the environment of our gut, and it changes our gut bacteria. I mean, you know, Man. these are bacteria that are used to some very specific parameters of pH, of acidity versus base, acid versus base or alkalinity, uh, and suddenly, suddenly, we change that with this drug that changes the pH of the gut to a level that it's never seen in a couple of million years, our gut bacteria are going to freak out. When they freak out, some of them live, some of them propagate uh, more than they would have, and others are suppressed. And that likely explains why, for example, there is a relationship between taking acid-blocking drugs and developing a potentially lethal form of diarrhea called Clostridia, uh, Clostridia difficile, which is something that will suddenly grow when we change our gut bacteria. Most people who have heard of C. diff know that it's a risk uh, that you might get if you take an antibiotic, but hey, there's an increased risk of C. diff, which kills 30,000 Americans each year by taking these proton pump inhibitors as well. So, yeah, people should know this stuff, but no one's talking about it. And look, these are well-respected journal, the Journal of the American Medical Association. <laughs> Hello, McFly, are you listening? Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, the gospel. This is what doctors look at, and yet no one talked about it. Yeah, and the single most common theme in every single one of the episodes I think that I have is the importance or stressing the importance of feeding healthy gut bacteria or taking care of our gut. That seems to be like the, the underlining key linchpin in, in our health. And, you know, some of the strategies that I use are, are exactly what you were mentioning, was I, I typically eat a, I like to think of my diet or the meals that I eat in the fashion of an egg. You know, an egg is supposed to support life. So it's high in fat, moderate in protein and low in carbohydrates. So I try and, I try and shape or taper my meals around that idea. And then, you know, I don't eat a lot of processed foods, although I was thinking about introducing or trying to introduce, you know, uh, some organic sprouted einkorn bread into my diet every, every now and then, you know, just experimenting with uh, Dr. Duyard's ideas. And other than that, you know, I'm also making sure that the bacteria, not only on the inside of my body is, is fed and taken care of, but also on the outside of my body as well too, making sure that I'm not, again, using a lot of these hand sanitizers. I wash my hands obviously when it's needed, but you know, a little dirt here and there is not bad. You know, your, your skin has an acid mantle and also has a lot of bacteria on it as well, too. So I have like also a strategy, a health or hygiene strategy for my bacteria as well, too. But 
that seems to be like the big thing, you know, it's, it's really the uh, upping the fat, lowering the carbohydrate and really taking care of our gut just seems to be the real big trifecta here. You know, it's true. And, and I don't know why I'm thinking about it right now. But you know, I, I think of teenagers who are developing acne. I, this is what led me to this when you were saying, you know, about the skin, the acid mantle of the skin and, and what we excrete onto our skin and the fact that our skin is covered in bacteria. It's and, our largest organ. Yeah, and and how uh, you know teenagers who are suffering acne are told to not to eat dietary fat because it will clog your pores. <laughs> yeah, and I remember that specifically. It's the carbs and the antibiotics that are disrupting the skin microbiome and the gut microbiome. And how crazy it is that uh, so many children, well, adolescents, continue to be put on. Uh, on antibiotics like minocycline, for example, uh, as uh, to treat this horrible skin uh, infectious uh, issue called acne, when ultimately that may well make the situation worse. So, mm -hmm. so you're right. And um, dirt is our friend. Um, uh, you know, sometimes I get organic carrots and I eat them with don't a little even dirt wash them on. Off. I don't, and yeah. I know that sounds. I mean. There's a lot of things that we're talking about these days that are certainly distasteful. I mean, you mentioned fecal transplant before. I mean, how bizarre could that be? <laughs> and what in the world uh, would I be doing uh, helping, for example, arrange a fecal transplant uh, for one of my patients with autism? I mean, where in the world would that come from? Well, if people would just take a step back and a deep breath, you would recognize, number one, that the gut bacteria are highly disrupted uh, in autism, and number two, that the gut bacteria dramatically influence brain function, number three, uh, that researchers have demonstrated that the changes in the gut bacteria produce chemicals that produce autistic activity uh, in laboratory animals, and that number four, now the University of Arizona is uh, conducting a trial exactly based on what we did, and that is fecal transplant uh, in uh, as an interventional treatment for autism. So it sounds bizarre. There's a, an incredible ick factor. But, you know, the fact is that more than 500 hospitals in America now are doing this fecal transplant, taking stool material from healthy individuals and implanting it into the colon of non-healthy individuals uh, because we know that when we do that, it can have dramatic effects, and uh, who knows where we're going to go with that. Yeah, we're just barely scratching the surface, right? This is new ground for us, the gut microbiome and the effects that our environment has on epigenetics. This is all still so new. We still know so very little about our health. It's, it's kind of amazing, and it's just really nice to have people like yourself and, and other doctors out there and other authors and people who are really going deep in this subject of ancestral health, and they're really validating these ancient sciences, a lot of these ancient techniques and a lot of this ancient wisdom that are now being unearthed and people are saying, hey, what's going on here? You know, okay, wow, maybe I shouldn't be taking a shower with dial antibacterial soap every single day. Maybe I shouldn't be taking that antibiotic for... <laughs> whatever reason i know that that you know they love prescribing antibiotics i know for my my personal example was every year i would get strep throat 
I would get strep throat. And so every year I would take an antibiotic for my strep throat. And I know that that had hugely messed up my digestive tract for a long time. So it took a, a long time rebuilding, again, like you're saying, with those prebiotic fibers and uh, really kind of stepping back and taking a really detailed look at my diet and the things that really affected me. So some of the things that I liked doing was going on a paleo type, ancestral health type elimination diet that allowed me to kind of specifically find out the foods that were and were not working for me. And, and typically it was a low carbohydrate, high fat diet that works the best. Well, you're right. And it, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that um, this knowledge was there and uh, how uh, ancient practices are now being validated. You know, and I think back about uh, what uh, Ayurvedic uh, yeah. practitioners would, would recommend 3,000 years ago. And, you know, a, a lot of what they did uh, focused on using things like uh, coconut oil and ghee, which is clarified butter, and the herb turmeric. And these are powerfully scientifically validated uh, interventions that we continue to uh, explore, that science is looking at uh, in, in very great depth today. Mm -hmm. We know that coconut oil helps enhance the body's production of what are called ketone bodies that wonderfully power the brain. Uh, we know that clarified butter is high in something called butyric acid, which is one of the three short-chain fatty acids manufactured by the gut bacteria that has a wide range of positive effects uh, upon the human body. And we know that turmeric, for example, as an herb, uh, changes our gene expression and allows amplification of genes that increase our antioxidant coverage, that decrease inflammation, mm. that enhance detoxification, and even help stimulate the growth of new brain cells. And this was knowledge from thousands of years ago, and now suddenly it's getting discovered. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I smile like you do, and I, yeah, it's, it's great. It's funny because, you know, they say, you know, oh, you, you know, you look on the Internet and there's some clickbait, you know, on there saying, you know, the five life hacks to do so-and-so. And I laugh at that because these life hacks aren't life hacks at all. They're just ancient knowledge that are now being, again, recovered that we're calling hacks or life hacks and now on the internet. So it's just, that's really funny. And you know what, you have um, your old book or you're reintroducing or relaunching a book, The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan. Do, do you want to talk about that real quick? Sure. So uh, Grain Brain, which dealt with uh, carbs, sugar, and wheat, and the book that followed, which was uh, Brain Maker, which uh, explored the human microbiome uh, how we affect our microbiome and how it, it translates to general health and brain health. Those books were more about the why. They were about why is this happening? What is the science telling us? What is the underpinning for me to make the various recommendations that I make? The new book, which is called The Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, is now about how. It's about how do you implement? How do you take this information and incorporate into your day-to-day -day choices uh, to really finally realize health today and uh, change your health destiny as it relates to tomorrow. So it's really about how do, how do I do it as a 62-year-old man? Uh, what do we recommend for women who are pregnant, uh, for children, for adolescents, etc.? And it looks at you know far more uh, lifestyle issues, including sleep and exercise, expressing gratitude in our lives, 
and of course uh, how our dietary choices are so influential in determining how we feel today and what is in store for us or not uh, moving forward. You know, it's still um, a, a challenge for all of us uh, to get the message to the pop the populace that yeah. we control to a significant degree whether we're going to be healthy or not. Uh, things just don't happen. When you have a heart attack, you're not attacked by something that was lurking around the corner. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't just happen. It, we set the stage for Alzheimer's and heart disease and, and diabetes and mm -hmm. to a, a certain degree cancer uh, years and years in advance. The, the empowering part of the new book is that our choices play a huge role in determining whether we have health or we do not. And that was uh, you know, recently very much validated in a publication showing that at least 50% of heart disease is related to our food choices. And this goes well beyond food. Yeah, and I also believe that it's also related to our relationships and our relationships around food. You know, and that's one of the big disconnects I feel that we unfortunately have lost a lot of uh, uh, for today is is our relationship to our food. If we had known where that animal had come from, if we had a direct relationship with killing that animal or digging up those tubers or foraging or hunting our own foods, there would be a deeper sense of connection with with our food. And thus, we would be paying a lot more attention to these areas in our life. Well, I think that's very, very true, and I think the fact that we don't, in general, pay attention to any of it, you know, people grab what they can. Uh, I don't know how many billion have been served at McDonald's. You know, people grab stuff and move on, and they're, and, and while they're eating, there's no connection. They're on the phone. Uh, they're driving the car, which is even scarier, uh, or at work on the computer while they're wolfing something down uh, just to get their bellies filled uh, with what they don't really know. Uh, there's no connection, there's no understanding of the power of food choices in terms of your moment-to-moment -moment, uh, nutritional status, but more importantly, as we've talked about today, how you are nurturing your microbiome and, perhaps most importantly, how you are sending signals and what those signals are that you are sending to your genome. Again, the epigenetics that are involved in our food choices. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for coming on today, and I super appreciate it. I know our time is short and that we could spend a lot more time discussing these topics, but that will conclude today's episode. And I'm, I'm James the Hairless Ape Broderick, along with Dr. David Perlmutter, signing off from Ancestral Health Radio. Until next time, remember, take a walk on the wild side. Thanks for listening to today's episode with my friend, Dr. David Perlmutter. I'm sure you're anxious to know how to get your paws on one of David's most recent books, either Grain Brain or Brain Maker, and here are the only two things you need to know to win. Thing number one, leave an honest rating and review of the show. Really, guys, I want you to rate the value of this show by number of stars, okay? And then after that, leave an honest and genuine review. Any feedback is welcome. I read every single comment in order to make this show better for you, the tribe. So thing number two, I need you to share Dr. Perlmutter's episode on Facebook with someone who you think will get value from listening to this episode. And remember to hashtag Ancestral Health Radio so that I can look you up 
add you to the drawing and contact you when the time comes. So again, thing number one, leave an honest rating and review of the show. And thing number two, share this episode on Facebook with hashtag ancestral health radio. Oh, and before I forget, guys, you only have five days or until Sunday to enter for your opportunity to win one of these two books. Again, that's Grain Brain or Brain Maker by Dr. David Perlmutter. I'll be announcing the winner on episode 22, which is Tuesday, May 30th. Good luck. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating or review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network, or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. Yeah.